Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Core Console RX podcast. I'm Mike Corvino. With me, as always, is my distinguished co-host, Cole Swanson. Today, we have a very special guest coming all the way from Chapel Hill, North Carolina, Jordan Miller. Jordan, what's up, buddy? Not much. How are you guys doing? Doing really doing well. Great. So, to give you guys some background, uh, Jordan and I graduated together, and uh, he was always extremely involved in school and very, very smart. And so I'm very excited to kind of reconnect with him. I haven't talked to him in quite some time, so I'm really excited to hear about what he's doing and uh, let him share with you guys what he's been doing because he's kind of a rock star in the pharmacy world. So I'm really excited to have uh, him on the show today. So Jordan, give us a uh, little bit of kind of history. 2015, you graduated pharmacy school. Mm-hmm. What happened after that? So before that, I just want the audience to know that Michael Corvino consistently outperformed me on exams. Um, that is so definitely not true. <laughs> so while his introduction is flattering, um, don't let him convince you uh, that he's something he's not. But, um, but I appreciate that. Uh, yeah, so I graduated in 2015 with Mike, MUSC. Um, and then I explored the Pacific Northwest where I did my PGY1 residency at uh, in Portland, Oregon, at uh, Oregon Health and Science University, um, that was a really good experience. Um, it was uh, one of the main reasons I chose there is because as PGY ones, they have you staff in like a clinical specialist role. So I was responsible every other weekend, covering um, about seventy patients clinically, doing all their notes, rounding, and all that stuff. It was a lot to learn, but um, I grew a lot from that experience. Um, I kind of knew in pharmacy school and going into PGY1 that I was interested in oncology. Um, as a student, I had a rotation at MUSC uh, in oncology. I did a pediatric oncology rotation at St. Jude um, specifically. And, and that was when I first was introduced to hematology or blood cancers. Um, so going into my PGY1, I knew I wanted to set that up so that I could have some more exposure into that. Because my St. Jude rotation was the, my favorite one I had had. But I didn't know if it was because I liked pediatric oncology or I liked hematology. So as a PGY1, um, had adult hematology and adult bone marrow transplant um, and fell in love with those. So I knew I wanted to do a PGY2 in oncology um, and had a program where I would get a lot of experience um, in hematology and bone marrow transplant. So that's what led me to doing a PGY2 in Chapel Hill at the University of North Carolina. Um, they have a lot of, we have a lot of specialists here, um, in the outpatient setting. So we have a pharmacist, all he does is, uh, the leukemia clinic, another, all they do is the breast cancer clinic and so on. Um, and we have a pretty good sized bone marrow transplant program, um, with rotations inpatient and outpatient. So, um, I was fortunate enough to match here, um, finish my PGY2 residency here in June of 2017. Um, and then I accepted a job. My first job was at the Cleveland Clinic uh, in Cleveland, Ohio, um, as a bone marrow transplant specialist. Specifically, I was hired to help them establish a clinic in their out in the outpatient setting. Uh, they didn't have a bone marrow transplant pharmacist there, only on the inpatient side. So having had a lot of experience at UNC in the clinic setting um, and learning from the pharmacists here on how they you know, took a clinic that had zero established pharmacy services, um, and then now have a very robust pharmacy service. And, you know, I took those ideas there and helped them implement that into their uh, clinic. 
Um, my wife is from North Carolina. I'm from out West. And I always knew eventually if an opportunity came up in one of these locations, it would be hard to say no. Um, an opportunity came up much sooner than I was anticipating. So I'm actually back at UNC Chapel Hill now after spending about six months at the Cleveland Clinic. Um, so I'm the um, outpatient myeloma and lymphoma clinical specialist here um, at UNC. That's awesome, man. So what, what, what was the big switch or how did you feel the switch went from going from student P4 year? I mean, obviously, I remember you took really hard rotations, so you were probably used to a lot of work, you know, high workload. But when you actually transitioned to a PGY1 resident, what was the, mm-hmm. was it a shock to your system? Was it, okay, you know, I kind of got this. I mean, it's maybe a little bit different for you because you've always been a hard worker. So I don't think you've shied away from the, uh, the workload, but did, I mean, was it shockingly different going to one, one to the other? Sure. So I did, I did my best, you know, my P4 year to try and give me a residency like year. You know, I took an extra rotation. Um, I tried to have a really good range. I tried to pick preceptors that would challenge me. Um, and PGY1 was extremely challenging still. It was very, it was really hard. Um, I think the biggest shock, I wouldn't say like clinically, I didn't feel unprepared. I feel like I was at an appropriate level for someone who just finished school. Mm -hmm. There was a ton of stuff and still is like things I didn't know. Um, But I think the biggest hill to overcome or the the biggest thing to learn was just being comfortable with not knowing everything and knowing that notwithstanding that, if you, you know, you develop other skills, you're still going to be okay. You're still going to get through the day, get all your, you know, responsibilities done and take care of your patients well. So, um, I developed, um, I, I, a greater efficiency, um, in working at my patients and making decisions for them. Um, so I think, yeah, getting, becoming comfortable with the unknown and the fact that you don't know a lot of stuff was probably the biggest shock um biggest uh, challenge to overcome gotcha awesome talk, talk a little more about setting up the um the bone marrow clinic the patients were mm-hmm. they already in your health system or did they hear about the clinic and they were referred to you guys or how'd all that work sure so bone marrow transplant um is I'll just brief background is essentially so it's a potential cure um, for some hematologic malignancies when you get that transplant from someone else, which is an allogeneic transplant. Then we have autologous transplant, which I'll talk about briefly, you know, in, uh, later today, um, which is a little different, but it's a very involved process and requires an extensive, um, preparation and research on the physician's part into the patient's, um, history, into their social support. Um, so they, um, so coming to the clinic, these are these are things that the patients have scheduled many visits prior to coming into actually getting the transplant, and then after the transplant, they're followed closely at least for a hundred days. Right. Um, and they, they have to sign agreements that they'll live within a certain mile radius of the of the hospital in order to go through the transplant and so on. So these patients that were being referred to me um, were already established at the Cleveland Clinic. They're already. They already have bone marrow transplant dates set up. They have a donor set up. Um, and the first service um, that I wanted to introduce was um, every patient prior to um, being admitted to the hospital for their transplant, I wanted a mandatory um, visit with a pharmacist. 
So during that time, I could, um, one, educate them a little bit about the chemotherapy that they were going to receive as part of their transplant, um, let them know everything I was going to do. Because I, I would build, um, I think both of you are familiar with Epic, mm-hmm. um, like a, the electronic health record system. I'm sure a lot of the listeners are. And then if you've ever done anything in oncology with an Epic, the system they use is Beacon. So my job, I built all of their Beacon plans to contain any order. They, so not just their chemotherapy, but all the communication orders for the nurses, all their fluids, all, you know, transfusion parameters, um, emergency medications in, in case they have any type of reaction, et cetera. So I would talk to the patient and let them know everything I was doing ahead of the, ahead of the game um, to prepare them. Uh, to prepare their um, admission. And then I would do a med rec, um, look for any potential drug-drug interactions, which often there were, because these patients come in with a history of cancer right. and and with immunosuppression, and often they're on antifungals like posiconazole or voriconazole, uh, which are strong CYP3A4 inhibitors. Right. So there's a lot of coordinating that needs to happen on when to stop those medications, what so they don't interact with their chemo, what we'll do on the inpatient side to continue to treat prophylax them with an antifungal um, and develop that whole plan. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of stuff that goes into coordinating their admission. So I was, the first recommendation I had was to make it mandatory. They meet with a pharmacist there. Um, And then we were starting prior to me leaving was as soon as they're discharged to meet with a pharmacist as well um, to go re-educate them on, because they're discharged with a you know, 20 plus medications sometimes. Um, and it's a lot to manage even for, um, you know, high literacy patients and their caregivers. So mm-hmm. uh, those are the, the first couple services that, um, that we began to develop on the, on the clinic side. Awesome. How was the relationship there with the physicians, you know, the interprofessionalism mm-hmm. and all that? Was it pretty solid? Yeah, yeah honestly, it blew me away. Uh, my second day there, the bone marrow transplant director, so a physician, I sort the email he sent me was, Hey, now that you're up and running, this is day two of orientation. You know, I, I'd like you to expand our busulfan pharmacokinetic monitoring program, which because that's not the topic today. That's uh, pretty involved, complicated. So basically we do, we do kinetics with busulfan to avoid um, certain tox one, because it has very high inter and interpatient variability. And two, if the patients get too great of exposure or if their AUC is too great, they can experience something called veno-occlusive disease or sinusoidal obstructive syndrome, which has a high mortality rate. So we do kinetics to make sure we aren't overshooting that goal. And then using the, um, we have a certain target AUC, and then based on the results we get, we may increase or decrease their subsequent busulfan doses. Um, so he, we only did that for one of our busulfan-containing regimens, and he wanted me to do it for all of them. And he just completely trusted that, you know, I would be able to make that happen. Um, then the following day I sat in a meeting where we looked for, we would discuss ideas as a group. And this was a meeting of doctors, pharmacists, nurses, and mid-level practitioners. And the first thing he did after introducing me was Jordan. He said, Jordan, we've been here. All of us, we either trained at the Cleveland clinic or we've worked here for, you know, many years. And you've, you know, you've been in a number of different places. What have you seen so far that you think we could be doing better? What have you seen at other places, you know, that you think we could um, improve for our patients here? So we generated just, we generated a couple ideas and he was hundred percent on board. Like, okay, let's set up meetings with the ID physicians. Let's talk about changing our antifungal prophylaxis from this to this. And, you know, just 
yeah, very supportive. Um, yeah. From you know, from the bone marrow transplant director and and any and all the other attendings I I worked with there, it was uh, it was a really good relationship. That's awesome, man. Yeah. So, so I mean, is this kind of like the position you see yourself in long term? I mean, do you, is this stuff that you mm-hmm. there's no chance you're leaving this kind of a patient's, you know, setting? I mean, did you, do you see yourself maybe like get interested in something else later on or is this, yeah. is this your passion now? So I love, you know, hematology and bone marrow transplant. Um, I love, I mean, the diseases themselves, they, they, it's fascinating. There's a lot of very exciting um, research and new drugs like, and, and new procedures and drug, like CAR T cells, which you both have probably heard of, um, which we're now doing for leukemias and lymphomas. Um, and I, every week I feel like I get a new, a new article alert of phase one trials of they're even looking at CAR T cells and solid tumor malignancy. So, um, it's, it's very interesting. Um, where, where my passion comes from it is especially with my myeloma patients, these are, it's an incurable disease and the physicians need, um, the, the patient's medication regimens and disease can get really complicated and they need a lot of supportive care. So I develop long-term relationships with these patients and help them manage their peripheral neuropathy or their bone pain or, you know, any number of um, side effects that they may have from the disease. So really the passion, the greatest passion I have is for those patients and the relationships I build with them and being able to improve the quality of their life um, for many years. Um, So that's, I see myself, I don't see that dying anytime soon that passion and that, that joy. But in my, in my long-term plans, like in the 10 year range, I would like to, I do think I would enjoy, um, becoming a, a clinical manager of sort of sorts. Um, like you know, being that role. voice. Yeah. An administrative role, but instead of, you know, like managing an inpatient pharmacy where much of what you do is, um, you know, improve operations, like how, how can we make our how can we incre- decrease the turnaround time for IV premixes or, or whatever? How can we get the med to the patient more quickly and stuff like that, which is all very important. Um, I would like to manage clinicians. So, you know, take my experience as a clinician for 10 years or whatever um, and use my experience to, you know, advocate for them and then on the administrative level help create policies and procedures, you know, that are benefiting them and allowing them to continue to practice at the height of their um, license while not becoming burnout um, from all the different things that they're required to do. So long-term, I think I would enjoy something administrative um, with clinicians. That's cool, man. Awesome. So what do you say to uh, students or even um, residents who are about to start or just starting out, um, not sure what they want to specialize in? Would you pitch oncology or would you say, it's a pretty tough, you know, you got to be a certain kind of person to, really want to do oncology because I know it's a very tough patient population because like you mentioned, uh, they're very ill. Um, and right. so I'm sure that's, that takes a toll. Yeah. So I, I ask a lot of questions, you know, if someone's unsure of what they like. Um, so original, <clears throat> originally I knew patient interaction was something I really wanted in my job. So I thought the only way to have that was to specialize in AM care. You know, um, so I had I had my rotation um, as a student in Amcare, and it was a very strong rotation. I learned a ton, but if I had to talk about diabetes one more day, I was not <laughs> going to be I was not going to be able to do it. 
And that's, and that's it's just, so like, you know, when I was talking about, you know, I just, it just wasn't, I just wasn't passionate about it. I loved the pay. I loved working with the patients. I did get satisfaction from helping them, um, you know, get better control over their blood glucose or helping patients with their warfarin, you know, manage their, their clots or prevent, um, uh, you know, or manage their AFib, et cetera. But I wasn't, I wasn't passionate about those diseases. So I try and ask questions and not ask them what, what, you know, did you like your oncology module? Did you like your infectious diseases module? I, I try and get to the bottom of what activities bring you joy. Right. You know, what do you, because you can do those activities instead. Like if someone had told me at the beginning of pharmacy school that I was going to enjoy bone marrow transplant or even oncology, I would have laughed at them. I had no interest in oncology. I thought, because I thought it was all, you know, sad stories, chemo, nausea, vomiting, and right. just something I had no interest in dealing in dealing with. But the actual day to day, the 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 tasks you do um, are, I find to be very enjoyable. So I try and get to the bottom of the activities they want to do, um, and and also sometimes the lifestyle. You know, what are you okay going to your job every day at six a.m. Because some jobs, you know, if you take an inpatient inpatient position, that may be required. You know, are you okay having a weekend rotation of any sort once a month, every third weekend, et cetera? Well, if you think, if not, then maybe inpatient pharmacy is not for you. Right. You know, but those are, you know, those are just some characteristics I try and get them to think about. Um, and then eventually when we get to the oncology part, I do have a lot of, and you know, is it too sad? Um, it definitely can be. I have, I've experienced some heartbreaking stories, um, but there's a lot of success too. And that's one of the reasons I like bone marrow transplant is because that's one of the few opportunities in oncology for us to truly cure someone. Mm, right. You know, they have a, they have a disease of their blood. Well, we give them someone else's blood stem cells. Um, and you know, if everything goes, goes correctly, they're cured. Um, you know, and so we, you know, and getting letters, you know, from patients who are five, six, seven years out of their transplant, you know, photos with their kids, you know, saying, you know, I wouldn't have, experienced all these things in, in my kid's life, you know, if it wasn't for the transplant and the care you guys gave those, you know, provide enough satisfaction and joy to get you through the, the sad stories, but it's, I don't sugarcoat it though. It is, it can be really tough. Yeah. So are you taking uh, students right now on rotation? Like, are you precepting students? Um, so since I'm newer in the position, I have like six months of protected time where they don't want to like Put too much on my plate um but that six months is going to end in august right when the new crop of i think we've expanded to like 38 or almost 40 residents here um oh, at unc wow. and then unc's college of pharmacy has changed their their model where starting p2 year you start doing rotations oh, really? so we have P yeah so we have p2s p3s p4s pgy1s and pgy2s um throughout the hospital so Starting in August, I will have um, students, residents, and yeah. And when I was when I did my residency here, I had students and residents um, on my rotations as well that I would be responsible for. That's super interesting. So are the are the students still having didactic experience within the rotations in second and third year? Yeah. So starting second year, they kind of, from my understanding, they like split the class into two groups, and Group A has is doing a didactic module while Group B is on rotation. And then they flip. Um, so then, so then when Group B is done with their, I think it's a month, maybe six weeks. When they're done with that rotation, they go do the didactic model that the other half of the class just did. 
Um, and it's like disease, um, disease, uh, groupings of right, right. topics that they cover. Right. Yeah. So, but they're still considered. So the, as P twos and P threes, those are all IPI rotations, even though they right. may have had multiple. Um, so for us as a preceptor, you know, that's like our expectation. Those are the, we have a different level of, you know, goals that we're trying to achieve with them than we would a P four or a resident. Right. So when, if you have a student like that comes in, they're like, yeah, I do want to do oncology. I'm very passionate about it. Do you have the, mm-hmm. the talk of, are you ready to work hard? And if you <laughs> are watching full seasons of Game of Thrones on Netflix or whatever, that that's, maybe it's not for you. Do you ever have to have that, you know, moment? Sure. So I, um, I'll, I'll let them know, you know, like these are the boxes if you want to mo- if you want to be a, like a specialist in oncology, these are the boxes you'll need to check, you know, and those boxes include a, a PGY one, um, in general practice and then a PGY two in oncology. And then I let them know kind of what those are like, you know, to get through. Um, and just so that they know, like, this is kind of the sacrifice that these are the sacrifices you'll be making. So you'll need to know and beforehand, you know, that you're going to be okay with that. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, it, yeah. So it's, Um, I talk about that, but often, you know, the, the students, I haven't had a student be surprised when I tell them they need to do a residency to do these things. You know, they they go, yeah, "Yeah, I know. You know what I mean? They're like, yeah, I know it's, it's hard. I see the residents, you know, they, you know, they look, (laughs) they look really, they look stressed or or whatever (laughs) it might be. So, um, but I do, yeah, I try and, so I kind of do the sandwich method where I might be like, Hey, here's a dose of reality. Um, this is what it's really like. I guess it wouldn't be, this is more an open face sandwich where I give them like the bad news first, yeah. but then I give it, you know, I, at the end I'm like, but it's, you are absolutely capable of doing this. You know, if you truly are passionate, like you tell me, that's going to be, you know, the gas you need to get, you know, to push yourself through, um, you know, these difficult, uh, these difficult couple years of training. Mm-hmm. Um, and on, and I let them know, like, not all residencies are created equal. You know, like you can do a PGY2 in oncology at one institution and another and have very different experiences. So I encourage them to really try and find out what environment they learn the best in. And some people, I, I have had co-residents, that super intense and like, if you don't know the answer, they're scared to not know answers. Like they thrive in that and they love that. Mm-hmm. They just, they enjoy it. And it's those type of uh, programs where the preceptors are that way where they do the best. Um, me mm-hmm. personally, I'm not that way. I just, I, I need to put, and I knew that and I, and I learned that, you know, as a, as a student. So I try and get them to, you know, have some introspection and find out how is it that you learn? What type of environment do you need? And then start asking everyone, any resident you've ever met, any pharmacist you work with, where did they train and ask them what it was like, and, you know, just to get these honest answers to try and get an idea of um, what programs might be best for them because there's a lot of great programs yeah all right man well do you want to uh kind of start talking about some mantle cell lymphoma kind of get into some of the more clinical stuff yeah sure yeah no problem and again uh, any questions or comments clarifications um please just stop me i I feel like I don't, with my patients, I don't get like two sentences out before I'm asking them, like, am I make like, does that make sense? But that's because <laughs> I'm not sure that I'm explaining it well. So I just want to make, so if I'm, if I'm not making sense, just stop me. Sure. Yeah, no, for sure. 
Awesome. So, like, will, um, you, will you walk us through real quick? Because I know a lot yeah. of people probably aren't really familiar with what even mantle cell lymphoma. Can we start with that? Like describe like what that is versus. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll start big high level view and kind cool. of drill down to mantle cell. Let's do it. So, um, oncology, you could put the type of, the type of cancer a patient could have almost in two first in two buckets. One, it's a solid tumor, breast cancer, pancreatic cancer, colon cancer, et cetera. There's like a physical mass of cells, um, that you can depend, you know, depending on the staging, they either go in and cut out, uh, and or use radiation, um, if it's early enough. And then you have what you could call liquid tumors. So that's your heme- your malignant hemato- uh, your hematologic malignancies. So that's your leukemias, your um, myeloma, and lymphoma. Um, some people may ca- categorize lymphoma as kind of a hybrid liquid because your lymph tissue your lymph um, is liquid, but you also have lymph nodes, which are tissues, and you can actually have physical masses. So lymphoma is kind of a hybrid, but you know for the sake of this explanation, we'll consider it a liquid one. Um, Then within the lymphoma group, you have two groups. You have Hodgkin's lymphoma, which is just one type of cancer, um, which has very, which, you know, when you look at a biopsy of it, there are certain cells, uh, Reed Sternberg cells that they look at, it's easily identified um, and actually has a pretty um, standard treatment for it and pretty good cure rates. And then you have non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, which gets confusing because while there's only one type of Hodgkin's lymphoma, there are o- over 70 different types of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Jeez. Um, yeah, so there's a lot There's a lot of them, and one of those types is mantle cell lymphoma. Right. So we've kind of drilled down to that. It is, in the non-Hodgkin's, we have indolent or slow-growing lymphomas, some that maybe you don't treat. It's just a watch and wait. It grows so slowly. If at all, you may die of something else um, before it ever becomes an issue. And then there are very aggressive lymphomas. Um, and mantle cell lymphoma is on the aggressive end. Um, it's not I would, it's not necessarily the most, but it's one of the more um, aggressive uh, types of lymphoma. Um, it is pretty rare. It represents 6% um, of all new cases of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Uh, the majority of patients who get it the age 68, 69 years, depending on what um, statistics you look at. So these are elderly patients. Um, and most of these patients are male. Some, some reports say three times as many men get it as women. Others say two. So somewhere between two and three times um, more men get this than women do. When the patient is being worked up by the physician to see you know, what, what disease they have, um, they'll, they'll do a, they'll look at their chromosomes and look for any genetic changes. And there's a characteristic one that lets, that helps us know that it is mantle cell. And that's the, it's called a translocation of chromosomes 11 and 14. So in the, in some type of text, you might, it'll be like a little T parenthesis 11 colon 14 parenthesis. So it just means a piece of chromosome 11 and a piece of chromosome 14, they swapped places with each other. The reason this is, the reason this leads to the disease and it is characteristic of the disease is that translocation causes um, overexpression of cyclin D1. Well, so what? what like, you have more cyclin D1. What's the big deal? So the reason that's bad is because cyclin D1 um, forms a complex 
with cyclin-dependent kinases or CDKs that are necessary for cell cycle growth, specifically in the G1 and S phase. So you have more cyclin D1 around, so it can bind more CDK, so the cell grows um, at an unregulated pace, um, which is cancer. Right. Um, so that's, as they're working up, they see the translocation 1114, um, that's kind of a hallmark of mantle cell lymphoma. Uh, and unfortunately, while it is aggressive, it is also, this is an incurable uh, type of cancer. So we're not, when we're considering treatment options and what's best for this patient, we are trying to optimize, well, prolong progression-free survival or how long you're alive without the disease um, and quality of life. So those are the things we're taking into consideration when thinking about how to treat them. So at no, at no point, these, these patients don't have a cure available at all right now? No, currently no cure. Our best chance is get them into a remission and make that remission last as long as possible. Right. So, yeah, that's the best case gotcha. um, for these patients. Yeah. To kind of help us with that, uh, you know, weighing the pros and cons of how aggressive can we be without impairing their quality of life, um, we have a, we calculate something called a, a MIPI, or that's Mantle Cell Lymphoma International Prognostic Index Score. And what this is, is a, it's, a, it's a calculation that puts a patient into one of three risk groups. Um, and that risk is risk of death. So you have a low risk, an intermediate risk, and a high. So a patient with a high risk who maybe is a little younger, you know, in that six, younger for the disease, 67, 68 range, that's a patient you're going to be a lot more aggressive with than a 75-year-old with low risk. Um, so the I won't do the equation because it's kind of complicated, but it looks at four variables, which is the patient's age, their ECOG, which is the Eastern Cooperative Oncology Group. Basically, that's just their performance status, like how how sick are they because of other comorbidities, age, and so on. Right. Um, it looks at their LDH at, at diagnosis and their white blood cell count at diagnosis. So you plug in those four numbers, it spits out a number, and then depending on what that number is, it puts them into one of those three buckets. And then you, we use that information to kind of guide us like, okay, this is how, you know, this is a, this person has high risk disease or low risk disease. So let's be more or less aggressive. Um, so first line treatment for these patients, it's very, they get very intense chemotherapy. Um, maybe the some of the most, probably some of the most intense regimens we have outside of bone marrow transplant. Um, so an example would be um, alternating uh, RCHOP. So RCHOP is uh, rituximab cyclophosphamide, doxorubicin, vincristine, and prednisone. So that's five chemotherapy um, every 21 days. Mm. Um, and then the next 21 days, they get something called RDHAP, which is rituximab, dexamethasone, cytarabine, and cisplatin. Um, so they get that alternating um, for about six cycles. So this, and these are, so these regimens are highly emetogenic. They, you know, they're going to, this is like when you think chemotherapy, the nausea, the vomiting, the hair loss, the mucositis, that's these regimens. So is that intense of a regimen standard no matter what stage the disease is in, or is that for like the later stages? This is for high risk. Okay, yeah. High so this risk. is for patients who, yeah, who have a, an aggressive, we're being aggressive with okay, this. Okay. Yeah. Um, during this, and if you'll allow me, I'll take just a brief deviation to just explain 
what an autologous stem cell transplant is because that is part um, of their treatment. Are you guys okay with that? Sure, we will allow it this one time. <laughs> okay, yeah, well, Just uh, once. Okay, the court will allow it. Thank you. <laughs> um, so uh, during that, during those six cycles, we the goal is to get the patient into a remission, and then what we will do is we will collect their own stem cells. Um, so these are ste- so at this point. Um, and, and not just any stem cells, they're hematopoietic stem cells. Right. So these are this is the common progenitor cell that gives rise to any blood and any, so all your B cells, T cells, platelets, all your white blood cells, all of that come from these um, hematopoietic stem cells. Uh, so they will collect the patient's own stem cells, um, store them, they'll put them in a preservative and freeze them, um, let the patient recover some, and then we take them to transplant, where they will receive even more intensive and this is just one round of intensive chemotherapy so as you both are probably aware with even the regimens we went over um and like the rchop and our dhap one of the major dose limiting toxicities is myelosuppression right you know we know this chemotherapy kills the cancer but it also you know that doesn't make a difference if you kill away all their white blood cells then they take so long to recover the patient gets infected and dies so that's, that's our limitation from pushing these doses. So autologous stem cell transplant is our workaround with that. So we bring them in. They, you have to be admitted. Um, they'll get uh, another in, very intensive round uh, of chemotherapy at higher doses with the intent to completely ablate all of their stem cells and their bone marrow. So we want, so sorry, all their peripheral cells and their bone marrow. Um, to try and get any little bit of disease that might be hiding out that we couldn't get with the RCHOP and RDHAP. Does that make sense? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then they take okay, so we, the ones that they've sorry. frozen or basically, and they're going to put... And where do those come from? Those come from the bone marrow, the stem cells that they're taking out and preserving? They come, they come from the bone marrow, but we mobilize the bone... We mobilize the stem cells from the bones into the peripheral system. We can mobilize with filgrastim or, you know, it's a biosimilar granix um, and or chemotherapy and or plerixifor. So there's some different strategies on how to get enough stem cells out of the bone marrow into the peripheral. Then you send them to apheresis where they collect off um, their blood and then they separate the stem cells from regular cells. Right. Okay. So they're admitted. We give them myeloablative, which if we didn't give them their own stem cells, these are lethal doses of chemotherapy. They would not recover their blood, their blood counts. They would be transfusion dependent and either die of infection or transfusion complications. Hmm. Um, but as you mentioned, we'll give them their own stem cells back. Those find their way back into the bone marrow, set up shop, and then they start making their own um, blood cells again. Hmm. So this is when we're doing intensive treatment for mantle cell lymphoma, that's kind of the big picture. First, like, at diagnosis, you have a, you have high risk disease. That's what you're getting. And we know that if you live long enough, which may long enough may only need to be a year or a couple years, depending on the patient, um, you will relapse um, with this disease. And that's when we when we get to that situation. Um, you know, if you remember those categories we're considering with the disease, and one of those was that ECOG score. Many of these patients, their performance status has come down quite a bit. And it's, it's very, I mean, they've, they've undergone a lot. Um, so we use 
excuse me, we use um, less aggressive uh, chemotherapy at this point, maybe bendamustine plus or minus rituximab. That's it. Um, but even with, with these um, less aggressive uh, regimens, the response rates are not great. Um, and this is where, so before ibrutinib, which we'll talk about today, and acalabrutinib, um, which we'll talk about today, just to give you an idea of some of the other novel agents, um, what the response rates were. So idolalacib can be used in this setting. Um, and the duration of response, so how long the patients stayed in remission, uh, was 2.7 months. Wow. Um, yeah, and only 5% of those patients got a complete response. Uh, lenalidomide or name brand is Revlimid. Um, this is the longest one was 16.6 months. It was the duration of response, but the others range from like three months to nine months Bortezomib, nine months, Temsorolimus, six months. So before the drugs we're going to talk about today, really these novel agents for treating relapsed mantle cell lymphoma were pretty cruddy. They just, they did not do a great job. So, so when you have a patient that has only like such a short, I guess, chance of living, like two months, three months, how do they afford to do that? Like, I mean, who pays? Uh, do they have, I mean, is that, do you have patients that are like, it's not worth it? So these are conversations. And when you say afford, do you mean like, um, like financially afford or emotionally, physically I, I afford? Say, like financially. They, oh, Sure. If they say this um, is going to give you two months, but you know, do you have, are they able to do that, or if they're fa- do they want to do that to put their families in that, or how does that normally happen? So um, the physician will have you know an open kind of honest conversation with them, let them know where they're at, and we'll tell them this the like this is what this these are your options. We can do nothing, and if we do nothing, my best guess is kind of this is how these are some of the things that may happen to you over the next months or years, you know, um, or these are a couple treatment options that we could consider. And if you take those, this is realistically what it would look like if you do that. Um, and then you, and then there's usually a talk of goals, like what's important to you? What do you want to do? Some patients it's, I want to spend every day I can with my grandkids. Others it's, my so-and-so is getting married. If I could make it to this date, I would just, I'm like, that would mean a lot to me. Mm-hmm. So like, wait, it can sound morbid, but on it, some people like they have a date, like if I, two months from now, if I can get to that, that's good. That's when my niece is getting married. I need to be there. That's important to me. Gotcha. And then after that, we'll consider, you know, so I would, and I will, that can get hard. Often social work is involved because, you know, it's, it's tough. I would, if I was in that situation personally, I would, just knowing my own personality, I wouldn't want my family to think I was quitting on them, you know, to ever say no. Like right. I don't want to fight to try and be around with them. And sometimes I, so you, it's, yeah, as good as the physician can be to get that family. And often the social workers are amazing mm-hmm. um, to get them to have these open conversations about what the kids want, what the spouse wants, what the kids want, et cetera. Um, if they can be honest with each other, that helps a lot. That makes decision-making um, really easy. And then from a financial side, um, so these medications like I, like I, uh, lenalidomide, it has an FDA-approved indication for relapse refractory. Um, um, or sorry, I, I would need to look to see if lenalidomide actually does, but like ibrutinib we'll talk about. 
it has an FDA approved indication for this. So the insurance should approve it. Gotcha. Um, so we're not, it's not, it's not off label. So if it's on label, um, the, they should be approved. Gotcha. Wow. So if, so from during this whole process, um, if they decided to do nothing or they decided to go through the whole process, generally, what are they, what can they expect as far as improved survival time? Um, so with the, with the current, so with these novel agents, um, the, the duration of response is not great. They're looking at a few months to maybe a, at best, um, like a, a, not quite a year and a half. Um, but that's just duration. That's just how long the disease stays in remission. Uh, you know, when the disease, the disease comes back, they don't die immediately, but right. this is a pretty aggressive disease. Right. So, um, I would, from my, and this is anecdotal, just thinking about some of the patients I've had, if they aren't treating, they're probably looking, they're looking at a number of months. Really? Um, and that number, and that number is going to depend on just how fit they are. And, you know, and, and while everybody, you could say, oh, you're high risk. Not all of these diseases are created equal. Even if two patients are high risk, some diseases are just extremely aggressive. And you, we kind of, we can look at how well they responded. So if we treated a patient on the first round and they had a, and their response lasted five years, I would actually feel really good about treating them again with mm -hmm. a less intensive regimen, you know, because their disease responded to it. It's, we're just going to mix up the drugs they're going to see this time. And they'll probably get another good response um, from that too. But if they're relapsing months later after this really intensive treatment, you know, you, you start to get really concerned and nervous about right. how and if they're going to respond moving forward. Gotcha. So talk yeah. to us about these new agents. Like what makes them special? What, uh, what's, what's the mm -hmm. data say? Sure. So I will, um, what, what got me looking into this, um, for my own education was, um, so the American society of hematology in December, they had a, they had a meeting, um, and where they, this is where everybody goes and presents, um, uh, a lot of new data, um, for treating these hematologic malignancies. And there was one where they looked at the initial salvage approach. So basically the first treatment that patients were receiving at relapse, um, for mantle cell lymphoma. Um, and it was a multi, it was a retrospective study. Um, but it was a multi-center um, um, study here in the United States. And they looked at patients who either got bendamustine and rituximab, bortezomib with rituximab, or ibrutinib. Um, and they looked at response rate and so on. But to, the statistic that stood out to me was the two-year overall survival. So at two years, what percent of the patients you treated with this are still alive? So for patients who got bendamustine and rituximab, 76% at two years are still alive. Um, the bortezomib and rituximab, 65% were still alive at two years. And for ibrutinib, um, 100% were still alive at two years. Wow. wow. So, so that, and again, this is retrospective, you know, so the study was not designed to show that, but I looked at that right, and I got right. very interested in the role of ibrutinib because I personally, at that point, I had not seen ibrutinib used a lot in the relapsed refractory setting. I saw more bendamustine rituximab. Um, so a little, just a little bit about ibrutinib, it's a, um, so the B cell antigen uh, receptor, these are, this is a receptor on the surface of all B cells, and this mantle cell lymphoma is a B cell malignancy. Um, and BTK, or Bruton's tyrosine kinase, is one of the first kinases 
in this stream of events that happens. So if you right. can inhibit it, you inhibit all the downstream effect, which leads to, which stops proliferation, differentiation, and causes apoptosis. So both ibrutinib and acalabrutinib are irreversible inhibitors of bruton tyrosine kinase. So they are BTK inhibitors. Um, the first study that looked at this um, uh, at ibrutinib um, in this setting was, and it's published in 2013, New England Journal of Medicine, um, but they looked at patients, um, or sorry, they gave patients um, ibrutinib for relapse refractory setting um, and mantle cell lymphoma, and they saw um, really uh, pretty impressive results. So the median um, survival, uh, progression-free survival was 14 months. Um, so that may not sound, but if you remember for these other novel agents, the, some of the median survivals are like three months right, or six months. Shorter. Um, but the median overall survival at two years had still not been met. So, um, it was that this was the first study that kind of gave us an idea that, um, ibrutinib could be a really good option in these patients. So fat that I just bring that up for historical perspective, fast forward, um, to November of last year. Um, and to that point we have, um, three studies that have looked at um, ibrutinib in this setting. The one I just went over, which is called the SPARC trial, uh, the Ray trial, which was done by Dryling and colleagues, um, and um, a third one I'm blinking on the, uh, on the author. So in, in November, what, the, what they did is they compiled um, all the data from these three patients. Because as we said at the start, only 6% of non-Hodgkin's cases are this. So the numbers are really small. Mm -hmm. You know, this isn't a cardiology study where we have tens of thousands of patients. Right. So we don't, we don't really get that statistical power um, from one study. So in the British Journal of Hematology um, in November of last year, there was a study published where they brought in all this ibrutinib data in this setting to try and get a better idea of um, how well this drug works. Um, and it was really positive. Um, so the overall, the overall response rate, um, was 66%. Uh, the progression free survival was 13 months and the overall survival was 25 months. Hmm. Um, so compared to the other novel agents, it was looking pretty good. Um, what I found to be very interesting, um, in this study, because the, again, these are patients in in all three of those studies that they compiled, these are patients where they got ibrutinib, but this was like the fourth drug they got, right? Like they're not getting ibrutinib right at, right at relapse. This is like their fourth line of therapy. So this, this study, they broke it down and said, okay, well, let's just look at the patients that got ibrutinib first line and compare it to patients, sorry, at first relapse and compare it to the patients who got it later on. And the patients who had um, got it at first relapse had the longest progression-free and overall survivals. So to give you an idea, um, the two-year progression-free survival, they hadn't, they hadn't met the median yet. So 57% of patients were still alive. Um, comparing that to, and that's at two years, so 24 months. But when they looked at the whole population, it was, bare, it was 13 months. So there's this huge difference in progression-free survival um, and overall survival if they got it first line. Hmm. Um, the reason being, so I, I was digging through the supplementary, supplementary appendix and looking at some of their other graphs. It appeared, so 
the same amount when we look at response um, to the to the treatment that you can either get a partial response or a complete response. And both of those mean exactly what they sound like. Um, and in the patients who got ibrutinib at first relapse, they had the same proportion that got a partial response as anybody who had it at second line, third line, or later. So what made that group different was more patients got a complete response. Mm -hmm. So this study showed that for patients who got a complete response, um, at two years, 79% of them are still alive and at two, sorry, have not progressed. And then 92% of them are still alive. So this is, I mean, compared to these other novel agents, so that right there, like I read that and it just, that was very, very impressive to me. Um, so from this data, really what I pull from this pooled analysis is at ibrutinib should strongly be considered at first relapse because at two years, 92% of the patients are still alive. Um, and almost 80% of them haven't progressed yet either. Um, because the majority of them got a complete or not the majority, more of them get a complete response than when you give it later. And are you using anything along with it or just the ibrutinib? Just ibrutinib. Wow. So, which is, so, we'll get into, we'll kind of get into the dosing. It's just, it's once daily dosing. It's, one, it's a pill. one drug well, is enough. That's crazy. Yeah. So, um, it did, it did not, it is not without its side effects. So the most common, um, are diarrhea, fatigue, cough, nausea, and, uh, peripheral edema. Um, those are all in like the 20 to 40% of patients will experience that. Um, and then the scary, the, or the significant side effects, um, that we think about with ibrutinib is atrial fibrillation and, and major bleeding. So this is grade three or more, um, bleeding. So in this pooled analysis, about 5% of patients had a grade three made, uh, bleed or worse. And, 4.6% 4.6% of patients had grade three or worse AFib. So while it would be great to use this at first relapse for everyone, depending on their history, it really may not be appropriate. Um, if they have a history of AFib or other cardiac um, issues, um, we really, I could, def, I could see a lot of providers just wanting to stay away from this um, and you, doing something like bendamustine and rituximab. Right. Is the bleeding just related to depleting the platelets? So that's a good question um, there. So I've read some preclinical data where, you know, they do a lot of different pharmacokinetic analyses and they'll, they put in a lot of different uh, enzymes, different targets, different, different classes of kinases. Um, and ibrutinib, while it does target BTK or Bruton's tyrosine kinase, it targets a lot of other kinases and platelets specifically. Um, and when I say targets platelets, it's not that it targets them for destruction, but it does interact with them to the point where they cannot form the platelet plug. Right. Gotcha. Um, so it's not that it causes thrombocytopenia, which it does some. That is a that is a an adverse effect, but it also is physically um, altering the platelet as well. Gotcha. And this is a capsule, right? Uh, it is. Okay. Yes. It's a capsule. So these aren't like IV drugs or anything. That's, that's also pretty cool. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize that either. Cause I'm not obviously in this mm-hmm. space, but when I first were looking at these drugs, I'm like, this, I didn't realize it was an oral dosage. Yeah. So, um, they are, um, oops, I'm, I want to do, I'm sorry, looking at that. 
Yeah, so they come in 140 milligram capsules. So that's something, you know, if you're, if, you know, if you work in a specialty pharmacy, which is where these uh, medications should be dispensed from, um, the, the unique thing about mantle cell lymphoma is these patients, the dose is higher than other, because we use ibrutinib for other diseases as well, like chronic lymphocytic leukemia, Waldenstrom's macroglobulinemia and others. Um, but this is a higher dose. It's 560 milligrams, um, which is four capsules, whereas for the other um, indications, it's three capsules or 420 milligrams. That's one of the distinctions between um, with with this disease. Gotcha. Um, and with any of these, so it can be taken with or without food. Um, I always recommend them to take it with a, to just be consistent with that. You know, if they take it with food, always take it with food. It's dosed once a day. Um, so to try and take it about the same time every day as well. Um, a little pearl, any, so this, it is a Bruton's tyrosine kinase, but this is a, which that's just a type of tyrosine kinase. So any TKI, if you ever have a patient on one of those or they're, you know, you're reviewing their med list, you know, they're coming to fill their Prilosec at your pharmacy um, and you're looking on, you know, you're doing a med review and you see any TKI. So these are drugs, they all end in IB. So right. the satinib, imatinib, um, panatinib, cabozantinib, et cetera. Um, what I would, and I do this, I still, the, some of them I have memorized, the ones I see a lot, but there are lots, and we use these drugs in solid tumors as well. Um, don't I? And I don't use tertiary references for this because I, I've had instances where it um, doesn't provide enough data for me to make the right decision. Mm -hmm. Just go to dailymed.com um, where you can search for package inserts, type in the drug, pull up the package insert, and the two things I look for every TKI is what is the instruction with regard to food. Because there are some that absolutely must be taken with food, and there are many that absolutely cannot be taken with food. Um, and with this being chemo, like, and whether you do or don't may change the C-max by sixfold. Wow. So imagine, you know, it's, and again, just like you said, Mike, this is, it is a pill, it's a capsule, but this is chemotherapy. So right. could you imagine overdosing someone by six times of chemotherapy? Right. Um, so look for food and make sure they know to t whether it should be taken with or without. And this one, ibrutinib, it doesn't matter. Um, but also look for anacids. Mm -hmm. so, sim so some of these absolutely must have an acidic environment um, to be absorbed. So, you know, if they're picking up some Prilosec over the counter or ranitidine, whatever it may be, and you notice that they're on a TKI, look and make sure that that's okay. And often the package insert will have very specific instructions on the timing and administration of these to make sure that there is no interaction. Huh. That's good. What, um, what are, you said daily med, what was the website you gave? Sure. So yeah, if you just go to dailymed.com, dailymed.com, um, yep. And it's, well, actually, I mean, it's daily. That's what I, I, I type in daily med and hit enter. It's actually, it's dailymed.com nlm.nih.gov gotcha um yeah so this is like the this is kind of it's almost like a section of pubmed or the national library of medicine um but this is just where you this is just where i search package insert so you type in the drug you hit go it'll bring up all the different options like if it's the iv formulation or capsule or whatever it may be they have the pdf and it will give you all the information you need awesome um i use these i use this all the time every day um and you get very specific often you get very specific guidance on what to do. Also with 
you know, on how to dose, on how to dose reduce based on side effects. You know, the patient comes in and they're, well, their platelets were 200. Now they're a hundred. Well, can we, can, do we need to change the dose of this? Can we continue? Do we need to stop? Do we need to hold the package insert? will it'll have a table and just show you exactly what to do mm-hmm. um, for all of these. So the, and yeah, those are just things I haven't found in tertiary sources like LexiComp or Micrometics. Gotcha. And so even this medication, even if it's by itself, isn't particularly cheap. Um, it's like 15 grand for 90 capsules, but you're saying since it's FDA approved for that, generally mm-hmm. the insurances are going to take care of it? Yeah. For me, what I've noticed is um, we'll send the prescription to, and these because this is chemotherapy, they have to be filled from a specialty pharmacy. Right. Um, they almost always require prior authorization, but usually that's a one page form that you just, you're, because they, these drugs have multiple indications, it's usually a one page form. You put in the patient's information, check off what indication you're treating, and then you send in their most recent um, progress note from the doctor, which will say, have their whole oncology history right. and specifically say, this is what they're diagnosed with and so on. You send that in, it should be approved. Um, but just because it's approved doesn't mean the copay will be affordable. Right, right. So we, so at UNC, and this is not uncommon, this is not unique to UNC, um, but we have a, a medication assistance pharmacy team, and that's their job. They look for copay cards, they look for grants, um, and if necessary, manufacturers assistance um, to get these medications um, so they aren't cost prohibitive to the right. patient. Awesome. Yeah. So what about the, uh, any other agents in that class we need to talk about maybe like maybe a newer one yeah sure (laughs) sure so ibrutinib is the only first generation um uh tki and just the last stats just because this was so impressive to me um the most recent follow-up of of all these patients who have been treated with it um the media for patients and if you may remember i said for patients who got a complete response they do the best. So for those who got a complete response, their median progression-free survival was 46 months. Wow. And their median overall survival at 60 months or five years had not been met yet. Meaning at five years, over 50% of the patients are still alive and they're just on single agent ibrutinib at five years. So that is, that's like, that's on that. So that, that really is, to me, kind of game changing for this relapsed disease. Now, are they taking that the whole entire time, or do they? Is it for a period of time? Yeah, so it's uh, that's a good question. Um, it's consi- It's um, without interruption. Gotcha. But just yeah. once a day. So once a day. Yeah. Yep. Um, some patients may have an interruption due to a side effect, um, but in the study, they looked at what they they called it like dose. I think they called it dose intensity. Basically. At the end, what what proportion of patients are still on full dose? Um, and it was like ninety five percent or ninety seven percent. So the majority of patients, they may have an interruption here or there, um, but the majority of patients stay on it. That do stay on it, stay at full dose. Um, and if they get a complete response, they have really good results. Hmm. That's awesome. awesome yeah. Man. Yeah. That's really cool. Yeah. Really cool. Awesome. I'm glad you think so because I do. <laughs> um, awesome. So uh, yes. Yeah, so now, um, as you all may have heard. Um, there is the first second generation, uh, BTK inhibitor, and that is Calquence, maybe Calquence, I don't know, but it's a calibrutinib. Um, and you know, you had asked about what is it about, 
um, ibrutinib that we have these bleeding issues, and I said that there's a number of off-target effects. Well, acalabrutinib has been shown in preclinical studies to be much more specific to the BTK inhibitor and not have near as many um, off-target effects as ibrutinib. Um, so maybe we'll see. I'll kind of I'll show you. I'll tell you the stats. But so with that, they were thinking, okay, maybe we'll have less adverse effects than ibrutinib. Um, and also, it's much more potent um, than ibrutinib. So we get stronger, um, even though it is suicide inhibition, um, we get a, a more potent, uh, like I think duration uh, of response with the calibrutinib would be the thought for it being more potent. Um, so this just like ibrutinib was studied in patients who had relapsed mantle cell lymphoma, but they could have received um, two, three, four lines of other therapy before they got a calibrutinib. Um, and this was just published, um, I think, last month. Um, and but if you if you search that, it's available on the, their package insert on the Daily Med. It has all of these statistics as well. Um, so the overall response rate um, of and this so this study had 124 patients, which may seem tiny, but this is, that's actually a really good oncology study. Um, <laughs> and that's a similar size to the ibrutinib studies as well. The overall, so patients who had a complete response or a partial response was 100%. Wow. So every, every patient in this study, regardless of how many lines of therapy they had, at least had some sort of response, um, which is very impressive. Yeah. Um, and as I mentioned before, the ability to get a complete response appears to have a very strong impact on how long your response is, because those who, on how long your survival is. Because those who ibrutinib uh, who had a complete response at five years, over half of them were still alive. So that is the background. Um, Forty-nine or forty percent um, of patients um, had a complete response um, with a calibrutinib. So, um, which was um, higher than ibrutinib. Right. And I know you guys said you don't like to change <laughs> the the editing of this, but I just saw that I misspoke. Um, the overall response rate was 81%, not 100%, so sorry. But that's still much higher than the 68% um, of ibrutinib. Yeah. So yeah. 81% versus 68. Um, if you want to go back and fix that, that'd be great, but I don't mind. Um, <laughs> looking like a goof. Um, so yeah, they... Patients had, more patients had a complete response. There was a greater overall response rate as well. It had a similar um, side effect profile from the most common ones. So patients still had headache, diarrhea, fatigue, um, and myalgias, similar to ibrutinib. Um, but what was unique, if you'll remember, excuse me, um, if you look in the package insert, which looks at ibrutinib, not just in mantle cell lymphoma, but in any disease it's treated for, um, the incidence of AFib can be about 9%. So almost, ten, you know, one in 10 patients right. almost um, can have, and that's grade three or worse AFib. That's not just any AFib. Um, in this study, there were no cases of atrial fibrillation. Really? Yeah, there, was, there were none. Um, however, just like the package insert for ibrutinib kind of pools it all together, they did the same type of study with a calibrutinib. So they pooled all the data for all the different diseases they're testing to treat it for to see if there was AFib. And it looks like the incidence is about 3%. So it's still, I mean, it's there, but it's 
less right. than ibrutinib. And they also think this has to do because it's more specific um, for BTK and doesn't have the off-target effects. It, the other scary part with ibrutinib was the bleeding. Um, in this trial, there was only one, uh, there was only, um, the only bleeding cases they had were contusions, which 13% of patients had, and some fatigue in 9% of patients. They did have one grade five, which is a death um, adverse drug event, but it was a patient who had um, a history of uh, aortic stenosis, um, and that's what he ended up dying from. So they didn't contribute that to the medication? They did. The independent review looked at, they reviewed the case, and they did not attribute it to acalabrutinib. Um, so yeah, so really the kind of take home from acalabrutinib, the we don't have as much data. You know, we have the one trial in mantle cell lymphoma, and but it had a greater overall response rate. More patients got a complete response, which I would then, you know, it, it should it has the same mechanism of action as ibrutinib. It should also translate into um, a greater proportion of patients having longer overall survival. You know, five year over five years um, uh, compared. If we're if it's similar to ibrutinib, which I think it's probably better. A um, couple differences is it's dosed twice a day and not once a day. Right. Um, but it can be given with or without food, with or without um, respect to antacids. Um, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So it's these are some of the yeah. So it can get kind of tricky um, with the ones, especially with the antacids, because you know you have a patient with a history of GERD or something else and. Um, there's some clever ways to get around it, but um, we, that's not something we have to worry about with either of these. Huh. That's awesome. And just yeah. so you all know, um, this is an AstraZeneca medication, and it looks like it just came out like last October of 2017, right? So hot yeah, off the Yeah, so it got, yeah, it got um, accelerated. They, they applied for fast track application, like accelerated approval. Like every, there's like two or three different things you can apply for with the FDA to get your drug approved as fast as possible. And they got all of them oh, really? um, with this medication, but it's and it's based on this data um, that was that was um, presented at the Ash meeting in December and then published in January. Wow! So yeah, so it's it's been approved since October. Um, I have I have heard patients both at the Cleveland Clinic and here. Sorry, not patients, physicians um, working on getting their patients. Not a ton because again, not a ton of patients have mantle cell lymphoma, but. Um, physicians were really eager to start um, getting this for their patient. They were really excited about it. Yeah, that's awesome. It sounds like yeah. it's uh, very promising and for a pretty awful disease might um, be able to make it just a tad bit better than what we've had before. Right. And if you think, you know, these, you know, the patient's median age of diagnosis is 68. Say they got, you know, they had intensive induction and transplant, had a remission for four years, you know, so now they're, if they were 68, they're 72. And then this drug gives them five or more years, you know, they're approaching, you know, the life expectancy that yeah. they would have had regardless. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, it may not sound like, like, oh, we're only giving them five more years, but these are already pretty elderly patients. Right. So, right. Um, five yeah, years so is a heck of a lot better than two months yeah, or whatever yeah. the old drugs yeah. were. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. At Alaliseb, I think it's 2.4 months. Wow. That's crazy. Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, I've never and I, I've never seen it used in this case, but for that reason, yeah. that's yeah. good. <laughs> yeah. So, what what else is in the pipeline? I mean, have you, have you looked at some of the drugs coming out, or are they even phase one? I mean, do you uh, think that there's like a yeah. cure like on the horizon, or are they at least getting yeah. a lot better at it? 
So I don't, I don't see a cure. Um, because I mean, while this, while the drugs, you know, the two we just went over have good response rates and, um, for those who get a complete response have long overall survival, we know that that, that intensive regimens at the start, that those are better, you know, and even though we're throwing that stuff at them, they're still relapsing. So there, I don't, I don't see a cure potentially. Actually, I don't know if that's a cure. So the newest thing might be um, CAR T cell therapy, um, which are you guys familiar with CAR T cell or? Um, I've heard of it. Heard that's, of it. That's I, couldn't, it. I couldn't so walk through it or anything. Okay. So it stands for uh, chimeric antigen receptor T cell. So essentially what they do is you pick a target, which is usually some marker like CD20, CD38, CD something that's on the disease you're interested in. And obviously you want to pick a marker that's only on that disease and not on other cells that you're not trying to target. And then they take the patient's T cells, you send them to the company and they genetically modify their T cells to express um, receptors that will recognize that marker on cancer. They send it back to the patient. We infuse it in there. And basically, you've just given back the patient their own immune system that now recognizes their cancer and goes and kills it. That's wow. crazy. So th- this is like this is like the newest, cutting edge, sexiest thing going on <laughs> in oncology right now. Man. Um, currently, there's an approval um, for this type of treatment in acute lymphoblastic leukemia um, and um, B cell lymphomas. Um, but so that's potentially, but we, that, the, the data is young, you know, so I don't, I don't know. Um, I, I, I wouldn't be able to predict, you know, kind of what that's going to really do for this disease, but it's right. exciting and promising, um, from as far as a cure goes, uh, as far as other BTK inhibitors, there's one, um, currently it's just, you know, the letters and numbers BGB three, one, one, one. Um, there was some data on it presented at ASH. Um, and it looked, it didn't look a lot better than ibrutinib or calibrutinib, but they, it was studied in patients, not just with mantle cell lymphoma, but also diffuse large B cell follicular and marginal zone. So it's really, and they didn't tease out the responses by individual diseases. So it looks good enough that I think they'll continue to study it, but I don't have a good idea of you know, if I think it's going to be really good for mantle cell. Um, what I'm most excited about actually is, you know, going all the way back to the beginning and considering what do we do for our patients who can't handle this really intensive therapy. There are a number of trials that are looking at our less aggressive therapies like bendamustine and rituximab and pairing those with ibrutinib or acalabrutinib. Um, so, based on the results, you know, of how long people's response is lasting in the relapse setting. I think you pair one of these drugs with two drugs we know respond, um, that the disease also responds to in the frontline setting. I think, um, especially for our elderly patients that, that it's a potential, um, really tolerable treatment program, uh, treatment regimen that will give them a response that will last, you know, long enough to where we don't have to worry about them relapsing, you know, that it's, by the time they're relapsing, you know, we're not, I don't know, you know, they're, they're getting old enough that, you know, they're having to deal with other issues, you know, or may pass away from other concerns. Right, so right. I, I'm really excited. To, there, there's a number of trials looking at um, 
setting these drugs in the frontline setting with our standard chemotherapy. Um, and I think for our elderly patient, our non-transplant eligible patients, um, I think that could be extremely beneficial for them. Yeah. Awesome. Cool. Yeah. That's cool, man. Mm -hmm. So kind of in closing, what, uh, what are some resources, what are some things that students mm -hmm. can use, uh, if they are interested in learning more information or what guidelines should they use any apps, anything like that okay. they can use in day to day? Sure. Um, so NCCN, the national, I think it's a uh, cancer care network, um, go to their website it require and they have guidelines for everything um for all diseases um and they are very extensive it does require you to create an account but it's free and they don't spam you with anything so you have to give an email you make up a password and i've never gotten an email from them oh the only emails i get from them which i signed up for is if any guidelines ever update they send me an email saying hey we updated these guidelines if you want to look at them um, so NCCN is really good. Um, if you're interested in transplant at all, um, there, let me look on my phone actually. So I get the name of it, right. Um, there is an app called, um, BMT guide. And this is something, um, done by, uh, be the match foundation which is an organization that helps find matches for a bone marrow transplant. I'm actually, I don't know if you've seen these things on Facebook, lemons for leukemia. People are like eating, it's kind of like the water bucket challenge, yeah. but instead of a water bucket, you're going to eat a lemon and it's to raise awareness. Um, I'm, I'm going to be doing something with that. I was challenged by the residents here, uh, myself and the other um, hematologic pharmacists. So we'll be doing that, but I'll put a little plug in, um, go to their website um, and try and find a place, you know, They'll send you a kit uh, to um, to do a little cheek swab at home to add yourself to the registry to become a bone marrow transplant uh, donor. It may sound scary, um, but honestly, that doesn't. They're not going into your bones. It doesn't require surgery. This they give you some, you know, some little shots you do in your belly, like insulin, and they'll collect your stem cells. And you can truly. This is one of the rare opportunities that you could cure someone for cancer. Um, I had a wow. co-resident. Um, she was, uh, selected to be a donor last year during residency, um, for a young man in Canada. And, you know, she, it was one of the best experiences of her life. I'm a donor. I really hope one day that I'll be, that someone will find me as a match. I'd be happy to do that. Um, so go to their website. Um, they'll send you the kit. It's free. Um, you know, and you could cure someone from cancer. That's awesome. Um, the website's BMT guide. Uh, so be the match is the name the of their match, organization. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. The name of the, the name of the app on the iTunes store is, um, BMT guide. Um, some other apps I have ASBMT is the American society of bone marrow transplant. If you're interested in that, they have a number of guidelines as far as what do we transplant and why, what the survival rates are, stuff like that. Um, the CDC has a nice app. So if you want a nice little vaccine schedule, um, for kids, adolescents, catch up adults, whatever. Um, they have a nice interface. That's an app I use, um, occasionally and the daily med website for package inserts. That's one I use a ton. All of these are free. None of them require, um, any sort of like, you know, paid subscription or anything like that. Okay. Awesome. And I do have a quick question then for any, like sure. of our community folks that are listening, watching yeah. this. 
What um, what vaccines do? Obviously, we know live vaccines. If you're immunocompromised, we're not giving patients. But yeah. what about non-live? Because that's the, some of the big debate I've heard between community pharmacists is they don't know whether or not to vaccinate. They always say talk to your oncology team. Um, yeah. What what's your thoughts on that? And yeah. is that really the, just the best advice to go ahead, or are they using over precaution or what? Sure. So the data are not great as far as because the question the the two concerns are is the vaccine you're giving to the patient going to hurt them and then two if it's not going to hurt them do they currently have a robust enough immune system that they're even going to mount a a response right right so like with these lymphomas they're b-cell malignancies so if you don't have b-cells or they're severely um, depleted give yourself a vaccine. Are you really going to develop the antibodies you need to fight off, you know, and then you mark in that person person's medical history. Yeah. They're vaccinated against shingles or whatever it may be, but they're really not. So those, those are kind of the two debates. So, um, I would always, you know, tell them to talk to with their oncologist, but for your, for your own education, um, the ones you will see given commonly and, and that are, there's some good data to recommend is the seasonal flu vaccine um, and pneumonia. Okay. Gotcha. Uh, because the, so those are the two that um, I wouldn't be surprised to see um, the patients still getting there actually are some guidelines like at diagnosis where they say, get your pneumonia vaccine right now um, be, before, like before they give you the chemotherapy because they know um, that you, that will be beneficial for you. Right. Um, definitely avoid all live vaccines. The one that's going to be interesting and I'm, uh, you probably both are aware of the vaccine Shingrix, mm-hmm. so the new yeah. um, the new shingles vaccine that's attenuated. Um, I just downloaded yesterday some phase one, phase two data of using that vaccine in myeloma patients. Yeah. Um, so I need to personally review that, but I I definitely I've heard my providers starting to talk about it with their patients that it's something they're most likely going to be receiving earlier. Um, is because currently we just give them prophylactic Valtrex. So they have to take 500 milligrams of Valtrex every day to, you know, prevent reactivation. But if we could give them this vaccine, um, that would be great. Yeah, yeah for yeah. sure. I'm, I'm really excited for HIV patients too. I'm excited oh, to yeah, see kind fine. of, uh, if this one's going to be a lot more effective. So yeah, Shingrix yeah. is a game changer for sure in the vaccine world. Yeah. So I, I agree. So I'm, that's some, uh, weekend reading I have for myself that <laughs> myeloma data with Shingrix. So Party. yeah. 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 So yeah. Yeah. My wife's out of town. If you couldn't tell. So. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. That's funny. Yeah. Well, Jordan, man, I really appreciate you taking so much time with us. I learned a lot too. That was yeah, great. That was great. Um, and, you know, I really, I know you're busy guys. So I appreciate you taking the time to do this. No problem. It's awesome what you guys are doing. Um, you know, anything to, um, you know, help people be interested in oncology or just feel more comfortable with it or, anything like that. So if you, you know, personally, you know, if you guys know anyone interested in this stuff, um, you know, in oncology or residency or whatever, you know, you guys can always send them my way. I'd be happy to chat with them or, you know, pick their brain, let them pick my brain, whatever it might be. Sure. So, so that was actually perfect. That was my next question. So <laughs> oh, do, sure. if a student has questions, Instagram is the one that we have the most followers on, okay. um, but there's, you know, thousands okay. of them on there. So if I have someone that wants to reach out and talk to you, how would they contact you? 
Yeah, so if you want to contact me on Instagram, that's fine. I'm confirming on my phone right now that I even know my name on it. Like I, <laughs> I look at a lot of pictures on Instagram. I haven't posted in a little bit, but I do look at it every day. So um, my Instagram is it's Bowtied Farmer. So that's B O W underscore T I E D underscore and then farmer but with a ph because that's clever i guess yeah gotta do that so yeah um so that's on instagram (laughs) yeah oh yeah exactly yeah now i get it so yeah so you can uh, follow me or send me a message on there um and, and then if we need to connect via email or phone or whatever from there you know we can get information um you know on through the direct message on instagram i'm also if they use twitter i have a uh, professional account that I use just for, um, you know, retweeting stuff from or reading stuff from like New England Journal, and that's another thing that this was huge at the Cleveland Clinic. Like, I had been there a couple days, and one of the doctors, um, I was getting to know him, and he's like, "Oh, I actually just read your Twitter profile, and it still says that you're at the University of North Carolina. You need to update that and say you're at the Cleveland Clinic." Like, <laughs> the docs there were tweeting stuff, and it's all, it's all professional. It's all clinical trials. It's their opinion. Um, but yeah, so if you, if you want to follow me on that Twitter, it's a J Miller farm D. Um, so you can direct message me or at me on that either. They, they had a, uh, doesn't, doesn't, uh, Cleveland clinic have an Alexa briefing as well for Amazon's Alexa? Uh, yeah, yeah, actually I think I do. I think I heard an advertisement for that when I was listening to the radio the other day. They're very, so technologically advanced is like, I don't know, an understatement there. They have like everybody here is really excited. We have a couple of robots that are like delivering medications and stuff around the hospital. Cleveland clinic probably has hundreds that they, I mean, it's like they have, they have like their disposal system and a a bunch of services, like essentially like two humans run it and like hundreds of robots that just like take stuff around and the humans like make sure anyway. So, um, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if they're on Alexa, Apple HomePod, and a bunch of other stuff. They're right. um, really into technology. So, when can we expect to see the uh, oncology Alexa flash briefing from you? <laughs> oh man, uh, I think I still need to educate myself a little bit. Um, you know, I did finish a resident, but there's so much to learn. Um, as you know, there's especially in my new position covering lymphoma too over 70 different types. I still got a lot of reading, so maybe yeah. sounds like maybe you've, a few uh, years. <laughs> sounds like you know what's going on a lot better than I do, so that's uh, that's uh, awesome, man. You walked us through it in a really I, I think logical, easy to follow way, so that's that's great. Um I'm 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 glad to hear that. I uh I hope I wasn't speaking too fast, you know, and people can no, no. follow along. No, no, that was great, man. Thank you. And we'll uh, cool. we're, we're going to talk afterwards and we're going to get you set up with sure. Alexa and get you approved by Amazon so cuz <laughs> so I can start oh, cool. hearing awesome. you every day. If Thanks, if mine can be on there, yours can definitely be on there. <laughs> All right, sounds good. <laughs> All right, Jordan. Thanks for joining us. We will talk to you next time. All right, thanks guys. Thanks. Thanks.